Brothers and sisters, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, it's on page 952 in your pew Bible. Page 952. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that chapter together. I may not have to tell you, and this may not be a newsflash, but we live in a world of distraction. I alluded to it in my welcome, that we are bombarded day after day with people wanting your attention. I may not have to convince you of that, because any time that you sit down to dinner with someone that you love, or maybe you're in a group of people eating dinner around a table, how many times does somebody's phone flash, or vibrate on the table, or ping you know, and then you're like, oh, if you need to get that, go ahead and get that. Don't, don't worry about what we're talking about. Just go ahead and get that. Or maybe you're like me. You were <laughs> even in researching uh, for, for the sermon today. I went to go search distraction and I got distracted on my research. And I spent about an hour looking at all these wonderful articles. I thought, oh, that'd be good. Maybe you go on uh, to your email and you're like, oh, I need to respond to so-and-so. And then all of a sudden you find yourself reading your latest feed, and you find yourself scrolling and scrolling mindlessly, just, oh, that's fine, no, that's nice, nice, Ooh, double tap, okay, Ooh, look, yeah, keep going. And you just find that there's so much distraction in your life. And, and, and if you're honest with yourself, you don't like it. You don't like it that you just spent an hour thumbing through a news feed and don't have anything really to show for it, do you? At least this public confession, I guess, because I don't. I don't like it where I've just spent a time saying, oh, I need to update something real quick and let people know what, what cool thing I'm up to. And then all of a sudden I'm finding out what people I don't even know are doing and get jealous and all that stuff. And so you're inundated, right? If you, if you go to a shopping mall, if you go to the airport, if you just drive down a street, you've got every little square inch of our world is covered in advertisements to try to get your attention. To try to veer you off a path towards why you went to the grocery store in the first place. So we live in an age of distraction. I would argue that distraction is the besetting sin in our culture. Sure, sure, sure. There's pride, there's self-absorption, there's self-deception. There's all these other things that are kind of of undergirding why we are so distracted. (coughs) But... As it, if you trace all those things out, the way that they work themselves out is how you spend your time, what you are spending your attention on. That's how all of that other icky stuff in your heart works itself out, at least in our culture. And so I'm pretty convinced that that distraction is our besetting sin. <clears throat> and, and in fact, as one author put it, he said this: limitless action. Oh, I'm sorry, limitless access to knowledge brings limitless opportunity, but only to those who learn to manage the new currency, which is their attention. That's the new currency. In the new economy, the most valuable asset you can accumulate may not be money, may not be wealth, may not even be knowledge, but rather the ability to control your own attention and to focus on one thing. That's the new economy in fact, uh, one uh, social media uh, entrepreneur that I follow, he says, don't worry about money. You want attention. That's what you want. Attention is much more valuable than money. That's what we're swimming in. That's our world. And if you remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we saw that there were tons of divisions 
in the church. And I argued that they were spending way too much time just looking at each other, worrying about each other, and they weren't really thinking about what God had called them to, namely oneness, unity, because they were called by one God in whom there is no division, no, no distinction. And they were distracted, like we can often get distracted from the main thing. So our passage in chapter 2 is simply a continuation of the idea that the wise and the strong of this world think that the message of the cross is foolishness and weakness. And they make fun of it. And so Paul is at pains to, to kind of call the Corinthians back and say, don't think that you all are each other's biggest problem. The world is at pains to try to distract you, church, Corinthians, those who say they follow Paul and Cephas and everybody else. Don't get distracted from the one thing that will keep you unified. See, we're on the same team. Don't, don't, don't be shooting arrows at each other, Corinthians, no matter how many differences you have. See, he called them to remember. Remember that, that we looked at last week? He called them to remind each other of how they were called, how God had saved them, that it wasn't because of their righteousness. You see, at the beginning of our passage, Paul then reminds them, in chapter 2, he reminds them that they didn't believe the gospel because he was really eloquent with words, that he was some good orator or some kind of good logical argument led them there. But it was all due to the Spirit of God calling them, convincing them, convicting them, showing them what it means that the cross is actually wisdom and strength. And it's humbling. And that's what Paul wants them to be. Paul wants them to be humbled to be able to receive. And so I'm not going to walk through this entire passage, but let me give you the main point of chapter 2. The main point of chapter 2 is this. Mature faith rests in the power of God revealed by the Spirit. Mature saving faith rests in the power of God revealed by the Spirit. That's the main point. And and you can see this kind of flesh itself out. In verse 6, you see here, he, he turns this corner from arguing about the strong and the weak and the foolish and the wise. He turns this corner in chapter 6 and he says, don't, don't think that, that we're not talking about wisdom. right?" He says, yet among the mature, verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. But remember that we said that God redefines what true wisdom is. It's in relationship to who he is and what he's revealed that's true of himself. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 we're not talking about ignorance or blind faith. We're talking about a biblical wisdom that's rooted in God's works in history. It's a revealed wisdom from God. Look at verse 10. These things God has what? Revealed to us through the Spirit. So biblical wisdom has been revealed by God to those who are first humble. To those who are first receptive, to those who have first looked at the own accounting of their wisdom and their own knowledge and their own understanding. And they've said, you know what? I don't really get it. Lord, please help me. Please help me understand what it is I'm reading. And and Paul says the, the spirit reveals the wisdom of God to those who are humble enough to receive it. If you aren't humble enough to receive his wisdom, then you won't. And you'll consider the cross foolish and weak. 
and stupid and moronic. But if you're humble enough to say, I need, then the Lord says, I'll fill you. I will fill you with the truth of the gospel that will save you if you first admit your need. But then he gives us categories, right? We, he talked about foolish and wise and strong and weak. Well, he gives us a couple more categories of natural and spiritual in verse 14. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. And the distinguishing mark is that the spiritual person has been what? He or she has been given the mind of Christ. Again, Note the receptivity that that we have been given the mind of Christ. And what does that mean? What does it mean in verse 16 that we have been given the mind of Christ? Well, we start to look at the world differently, begin to adjudicate or judge the world in a different way. We begin to look at all of our circumstances in a different light. That suffering and pain gets reconfigured, doesn't it? And so that's the difference between the natural and the spiritual person. The spiritual person has this wisdom of God that's revealed to them, and then they look at the world differently. They begin to think differently. And you could probably attest to that in your own life. That you're like, I don't really think I should think about that anymore. I don't think I should be bothered by that. Or I don't think I should dwell on that anymore. I don't think I should do that anymore. Because why? Not because you were smart enough to figure it out. Because God, in His grace, has revealed it to you. That's a humbling place to be. And that's that's the very fiber behind chapter 2. Again, let me say it again. Mature, saving faith rests in the power of God as revealed by the Spirit. But today, but today I want to spend our time looking at how Paul could keep going. And it's really embedded in these first few verses. And you could kind of breeze over it. But it's just so powerful. And it is the very reasoning of why he does everything he does. I mean, we've already talked about the Corinthians. He spent a year and a half with them. He loved them. He he cried over them. He was afraid, as we'll see here in a moment. He was trembling. He was at pains for them to understand what he was trying to teach them. He loved these people. And here they are, as he's gone, stabbing him in the back, saying, he's not a real apostle. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's foolish. He's weak. And so Paul gives us a little insight to how you and I can keep going in our faith. Can keep moving forward, and it's in this embedded assumption that he has. I mean, Paul was beaten. Paul was backstabbed. Paul was gossiped about. So have you ever asked yourself, what kept him going? Because if you and I were to have to get shipwrecked and, and not and go without food for a while and then get beaten as much as he was beaten, get stoned, get up, go back into the town. I think we probably would have given up at step one. He said, oh, this is crazy. You know, you and I give up when we when we get a little nervous about talking to our neighbor. <laughs> Let's be honest. But Paul, what was it that kept him moving forward? What was it? What was driving him to keep going back to places that would make fun of him and deride him and call him foolish and weak? What what was it behind that? What was the thing that kept him motivated in face of obstacles? How was he not distracted from what God had called him to do? To be the apostle sent out to the four corners of the earth, to the uttermost parts of the earth that we've been talking about during this season of Epiphany. What was it? Well, 
Let's look at verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. We're just going to read that first paragraph, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. <clears throat> and again, this is a continuation, obviously, of chapter 1, because when he was writing his letter, he didn't have the, the chapters and verses. He didn't stop and put that in there. So this is just a continuation of that. And so he's saying, remember that not many of you are wise, not many of you are smart. And how else were you called? How else were you called? Look at verse 1. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And this is it. This is the embedded assumption. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's Paul's message. Not in plausible, lofty, awesome words and verbiage and thinking, if I can just say it the right way, they'll be convinced. Paul knew that his message was something greater and something deeper. He wasn't going to convince anybody. And brothers and sisters, you can't convince someone to be saved. I hope that's liberating for you. When, when I came to that realization in college, I, I remember I would debate with people all day long. I'm like, why can't they just get it? No, this, this is the message. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because it doesn't rest on our wisdom and our ability to be able to put one plus one together. See, if you remember last week, there was a historian who called Christians miserable wretches who followed a crucified philosopher who taught them simply how to love one another. That was the way that these, these, these folks in the early beginnings of the church, that was a historian from 200, he wrote that, saying they worship some crazy god or who, they pro, who they claim to be a god, and he's really just a, a crucified, crucified philosopher. And you've got to remember that the world that Paul lived in was not a world that was ruled by reality television or, you know, or talent shows or any of these things. What, what people would do at that time, you can see this in the book of Acts where Paul is in the Oropagus in Athens and, he, and he's arguing, he's talking through people. And, he's like, and, and they, there's this little phrase that the Athenians loved nothing better than to talk about the latest philosophy of the day. Right? Remember we said Corinth was just right down the street, so to speak, from Athens. And so all of this, this is the, the milieu, this is the, the culture in which he's in. And that they would just sit and they would listen for hours and hours. Because they didn't have to go see what the latest Netflix thing was. They would just sit and they would listen. That's how they were entertained. And so there began to be developed this, this school of rhetoric and this oratory school that would be able to say, if you can string along enough sentences together, then you can people get swept up in it. I mean, I've, I've had this experience before. Like you listen to an amazing speaker and you're just like, oh, my goodness, what? what? And you just get lost in what they're saying. And then you start to measure what they just said. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what, what did he just say? I don't, I don't get it. And so that's the world in which Paul lived. It's like, wow, that sounded really cool. That's a lot of alliteration, a lot of rhyming. And what was the cash value? I don't remember. Have you ever had that experience? I have it a lot. Um, but, and so Paul tells us that he wasn't one of those guys. He wasn't peddling the word of God, as he says in another letter. He wasn't trying to just wow them and, and get their affection. Now, something greater was driving him. He didn't come with this, this, literally, this superiority speech. 
or wisdom. He didn't come to them saying, I I can put up multisyllabic words together and therefore you should listen to me because I'm smarter. You know, he wasn't putting that together. And and you would think like Paul in in this context in Corinth, he'd say, why would he bring it up? Have you ever thought about that? Why would he bring up that he was not a good orator when these people love good oratory? Why would he do something like that? That's, That's almost like, it's almost like coming to church on Sunday and you know that this person is a diehard fanatic for their sports team and they just played your sports team and your sports team lost to that team. So you're not going to bring it up, right? I know that you all have had that experience because I see everybody smiling, that, that you don't bring up something that is obviously a weak point. But what does Paul do? Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm not going to talk about that I was trembling I was about ready to just pass out from being afraid. No, Paul doesn't say, let's not mention that. Let's kind of talk about this over here. He says, no, 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 let's talk about this. (laughs) Let's talk about the fact that I was afraid. I was trembling. He doubles down on the cross. He doesn't say, let's kind of talk about some other cool things that I know that you'll like. He says, no, 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 I'm going to come back to this very thing that is embarrassing to me, and it should be embarrassing to you if you're weighing it in the scales of what what the world values. So he doubles down and he doesn't shy away from it. He mentions it again and he keeps mentioning it throughout the letter. That's what's fascinating about it. And that's what we love about Paul, right? He's like, no, I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> Look at verse 5. Why does he do it? Why does he keep mentioning it? So that, that's a key word, so that, that's the reason. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in power of God. Brothers and sisters, Relish the fact that you and I cannot reason our way into heaven. We can't argue our way into heaven. We can't look at somebody who doesn't know Jesus and say, man, if you only knew. That's not what heaven is filled with. Heaven is filled with people who have said, I give up. Otherwise, we'd be a lot of people just puffing our chest out, holding our nose up, looking down our noses at other people. Heaven is filled with needy people, sick and wounded by the fall. We didn't figure it out. You didn't figure it out. We can't figure it out. And Paul wants them to realize that too. What's the remedy for pride in our lives is to say, not many of you are really smart. Not many of you were rich enough to buy the best tutor to be able to learn these things. No, God graciously revealed it to you by His Spirit. And when we are confronted with this amazing reality of being saved by God's gracious calling by His Spirit, and not based upon our earning it, we begin to weigh what's really valuable in life, don't we? We begin to look at circumstances a little bit differently. Remember I mentioned a historian around 200. Well, there was a bishop around that same period of time in the year 200 by the name of Cyprian. Cyprian. And Cyprian was an orator. He was a teacher of rhetoric. He was actually a lawyer in the law courts before he became a Christian, I believe at the age of 25. And so Cyprian knew about these these lofty speech, these words of wisdom. Cyprian knew that. He knew that there was great value in holding the attention of everybody else. He knew that he could win an argument in a court of law. He knew that he could persuade people to his way of thinking through lofty words. 
But he writes something really curious to this this, uh, friend of his named Donatus. See, he wrote this. He says, in courts of justice, we're in the law court, in the public assembly, in political debating, a copious eloquence may be the glory of a wordy ambition. It's like people that like to talk a lot, right? Yeah, that's really glorious if that person can do that. He says, but this, but, but, in speaking of the Lord God, a chaste simplicity of expression strives for the conviction of faith rather with the substance of belief than with the powers of eloquence. And so what's he saying through all that? He's saying, yeah, in the law courts you better be eloquent, but when we talk about God, when we talk about salvation, we better keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid is what he's saying. Right? He's saying don't muck it up with all of your fine-sounding arguments. Don't try to point the attention to you because it's not about you and what you can say and how well you speak. But you're pointing to something and someone else. And so Cyprian was willing to lay down his desire for people to think well of him. And maybe you and I would do well to take his example and say, you know what? I do care what other people think way too much. And I need to lay it down. Because why? Because Cyprian was guided by one thing, one good, true thing that determined what his life was about to make Jesus Christ known. That's what guided him. That's what pushed him. That's what propelled him. He said, you know what? I can speak really well. I mean, this is a guy who knew his words. He said, I can do that, but that's not the point. That's not the point. You know, I went to uh, Argentina, as many of you know, for a couple years with Campus Crusade. And I went there with one of my best friends in college named Jason. I love Jason, and I try to keep up with him as much as we can. Um, <laughs> and I had this idea of going to Argentina with some of my best buddies. I was really influenced by Jim Elliott, and Jim Elliott went to, to Ecuador with four of his best buddies, and they died there. And I was willing to die there, actually. And my whole, my whole scheme was I, I went and asked five different guys, knowing that one probably wouldn't go. Uh, but I went and I asked all these different best buddies in college, and Jason was the only one to go. So that's why he's my, he's my best friend, because <laughs> uh, he was the only one to really go. Um, and uh, I was you know, trying to convince him, and apparently I was able to do that. And uh, we're on the plane to go to our, our briefing. So we were going to go to Los Angeles and then fly down to Buenos Aires. And on the plane to Los Angeles, and this never occurred to me because I took Spanish in high school and I took it in college. And I said, hey, Jay, um, so how, how much Spanish, how, how, many, how many years did you take? He's like, uh, I didn't take Spanish, Matt. And I was like, oh, no. What, what did you take? Did you take French? What did you take, German? He's like, no, I took Mandarin. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I was like, great. Um, uh, um, okay, so what words do you know in Spanish? He says, hola. I was like, no, 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 this is not going to go well. And so, so Jason and I went to Los Angeles. And I was like, okay, you need to say these things. Hola, mi nombre es Jason. You know, I would just go through these words. And so we went to Argentina. And I tell you what, you would think that two years was wasted because Jason stuttered. You know, Jason, we, I, I've got some stories I probably can't share publicly. But I, I've got some amazing stories of how he stumbled over his words. And one of the things I encouraged Jason with is, I was, remember, you, remember Moses? Moses said, I'm slow of tongue. I said, so it will be with you, that you don't have to be eloquent with your speech. And there were many times where Jason would make a fool of himself. And he looked stupid. 
And Jason's not stupid. But, he, but some of the Argentines are like, he's stupid. And they're like, no, 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 he's not. Just because he can't speak and because he's fumbling over words doesn't mean he's foolish. And you would think that for two years Jason wasted his life. But I can tell you and I can promise you this. I remember to a person that they loved Jason. They said for a man to come down here to not speak our language. That message must be incredible. That message must be so incredible for him to be willing to look like a fool for it. And there were people that loved him. And there were people that came to know Jesus as he fumbled over words. Because the message is not based on eloquence. And you should take great heart in that. You should take great heart in the fact the Apostle Paul himself, what did he say? In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul that we think he kind of showed up on the scene with a sword in his hand. He says, listen here. No, no. Paul shows up and he says, I was, I was shaking. And you can see in 2 Corinthians, he, he references it again. Doubling down, right? Because it's not on his ability. He says, y'all, I was, I was scared to death. But this message is so important for you to hear. I was willing to be looking like a fool. Looking weak. We know he wasn't a fool. And we know he wasn't weak. That's what drove Paul. That's what drove Cyprian. That's what drove my buddy Jason. to say there is a message so great that I would be sinning against God for me to keep it to myself. No matter what I look like. See, Paul... This driving passion, this one thing, this one person that was behind him, driving him. This one person who was in front of him, calling him to himself. See, Paul was willing to be patient. That's at the heart of all of this. When he talks about natural and spiritual and foolish and wise and strong and weak. At the heart of all of this, he was able to be patient. Because he knew that the natural person would never come to become the spiritual person if somebody didn't preach to them. If somebody didn't reveal it to them. And so he says, I want you natural person to become a spiritual person. I want the wisdom of God to be revealed to you in Jesus. That was the driving passion for Paul to know one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the one thing. The one all supreme driving passion So in this world, brothers and sisters, we have to work even harder than even the Apostle Paul to be led and guided, mastered by one thing. See, those who make a difference in the world don't know a lot of many small things. They're ruled by one overriding passion and zeal. People that make the most difference in other people's lives are the ones who know one thing. So when you're given to running after many, many things, I want to encourage you to be ruled by one thing. Just one thing. You don't have to know a lot of great small things. Just one thing. See, famous Bruce Lee. (laughs) Bruce Lee said this. He said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once. But I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Another writer by the name of Gary Keller in his wonderful book called One Thing writes this. Extraordinary results are directly determined by how narrow you can make your focus. 
When you spread yourself out, you, you end up spread too thin. Knowing one thing, and one of my favorite authors, John Piper, wrote this. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one. And then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. You know the difference between a light bulb and a laser beam? It's focus. Same amount of energy focused on one thing. One lights up a room which is beneficial, but one cuts through metal. Focus. One thing. One place. One thing that you and I ought to be about. See, I want us to be a church that reflects this same passion that the Apostle Paul had. See, it wasn't just about one thing, was he? It was about one person. Except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. One thing has to be Jesus. The, the freedom won in His bloody crucifixion and the power given to those who will by faith lay themselves down at His feet. They'll be raised up again with Him in power. One thing, one person, one driving passion that ought to be our driving passion. That will empower you and me to not give a flip. To not care what other people think about us. Because there's one person that we seek to please. And we're, we're way too distracted. We're way too pulled about what, what are they going to think about me if I say that. And the Lord wants to free you this morning to stop caring. To care about one person. The one who can free you, the one who has freed you, your maker, your king, your creator, your Lord, your savior, the only God. He wants to free you from being distracted, being pulled apart, being spread too thin to be able to say, you know what? If I die tonight, I want to be about one thing. I want to be about one person. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So can I plead with you this morning? Can I ask you? To be focused on knowing Christ and making Him known. Let that be on your deathbed the thing that you can say, I knew but one thing. I knew but one person. I knew but one driving passion in my life was to know Jesus and to make Him known. That's the worthy cause, to lay our lives down every single day. And so when you get discouraged that something isn't going your way, you can come back to Jesus and Him crucified, Him raised from the dead. Let him be the one you seek to please. You're not going to please everybody. I promise you that. But you can please one. Jesus Christ. And him crucified. My brothers and sisters, let that be. Let that be our banner. Hanging above our church. Hanging in each one of our lives. That when we come to die, that we say that we were about one. And only one, Jesus. We didn't get distracted by a hundred million advertisements and a hundred million good things, but we were mastered by one great thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us to call those who were dead in the trespasses and sins to make us alive with Jesus Christ. What a gift, what an honor, what a privilege it is to be your children, to be your ambassadors. So God, we ask you this morning to make us as Christ the Redeemer Church about one thing, about one person, Jesus Christ. 
that the world will soon pass away in all of its glory, but there will be one who stands, who indeed is seated at your right hand, the God-man Jesus Christ, crucified but risen again in glory. And we want to give our lives. We want to lay down our lives. We want to lay our pledge to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified the rest of our lives. We ask all these things in His name. Amen. Amen.